European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, a Berlin-based psychologist, Aileen Kakavand, dissects one of the most startling strategies used by the far right, homo-nationalism. But before we get serious, Tom and I discuss pop music, populism, and why Mick Jagger is speaking Polish. Wrong tune. <laughs> hey, Tom, what do you think about pop stars going political? Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, of pop stars going political, mainly because of that brilliant Billy Bragg line in the song Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, in which he says, Mixing pop and politics, they ask me what the use is. I offer them embarrassment, my usual excuses, which I always thought was very good. That was a really bad Billy Bragg impression. Sorry, Billy. What's he saying there? I think what he's basically saying is, I'm a bit embarrassed about it, but, like, you know, it's kind of who I am. Is that why they're reluctant to do it? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a whole set of questions about whether or not that's a platform. Like, being a pop star, is that a credible platform to get into politics? I think there's a lot of arguments about, particularly with very kind of poppy bands, like, you don't want to alienate potentially part of your base there's also another genius line in muppet treasure island where the band are playing with the there's a fight between the pirates and the and the crew obviously you know the story of treasure island and the band are playing the kind of pirate party one of them turns around i think it's uh zoot suit the um the sax player and says hey man aren't these guys the bad guys and one of the other band members turns around and says hey man just play the gig don't get involved in politics (laughs) They nailed it because it took, you know, Taylor Swift ages right. to kind of come out and say the Tennessee Republicans are really not good for women, not good for anyone. I'm going to support the Democrats. Bono, I think he's saying he will take on a high profile European role in the May 2019 elections. Is that good? Is it going to be negative? You know, is Bono kind of a jokey figure who's not really going to help things? Bono's managed this in a very interesting way because obviously he has been, rather than a taking a, a side in the political debate, actually, which he has rarely, if ever, done, he's he's been an issue advocate, right? So he's been the face of, or one of the faces of, development as, a, as an idea and as an issue, but has worked that on the left, on the right, like with everybody. He met with George W. Bush very famously. He's hung out with the EPP. He's, I think he spoke at one of the EPP party conferences a few years ago, indeed. He's Catholic enough. Right. Well, exactly. And But has also, you know, did a lot of work with Gordon Brown and, and Tony Blair when they were, they were in power. So, I mean, I think he's kind of traversed both sides of it. But I think that the Taylor Swift thing is super interesting, partly because it plays into the whole Taylor Kanye thing. Like... That 10-minute monologue from Kanye West in the White House was one of the weirdest pieces of television I have ever watched. 
But he is now engaged in politics. Like, he's made a decision, right? He's basically gone party political. Maybe that prompted Taylor Swift to come out on the other side. Like, who knows? But if it's going to engage young people in a political debate, brilliant. Taylor Swift has driven voter registration phenomenally in Tennessee, then, which yeah, is terrific. All power to her elbow. And I, I like the idea of supergroups agreeing to go to authoritarian countries or countries that are turning authoritarian – but as a kind of price for doing that, speaking out on stage. Right. So they can still tour, but they should speak out on stage and, you know, remind their audience yeah. about what's going on at these events, which are generally stadium events. So here's Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones talking to an audience at a recent gig at Warsaw's National Stadium. Yes, started, baby, Sandro. Who knew Mick Jagger spoke Polish? Like this, I mean, so many skills. So many skills. I can I can move like that and I can speak Polish. So yeah, that's Jagger saying that he may be too old to be a judge, but that he's not too old to sing. That is Jagger criticizing the Polish government, which is setting an age limit on judges on the pretext that they're tainted by communism. Of course... The truth is more like that the ruling Law and Justice Party is hell-bent on dismantling checks and balances inside their political system. And so maybe if things get worse and the Stones are still touring, they'll end up boycotting Poland. Right. That could happen. An interesting example of this. So Lord recently cancelled a gig in Israel, having been written to by two uh, women, young women, uh, based in New Zealand, one of whom is Israeli and one of whom is Palestinian. And the two of them got together and wrote a letter to Lord basically saying, you're supporting a regime which is destroying the two-state solution is hard right, the current Israeli administration is hard right as the Israeli government's ever been. And she cancelled the gig. She then got a court case taken against, there's a court case against these two women that was decided in the Israeli court that they had to pay damages to the teenagers who would have gone to the Lord gig if it hadn't been cancelled. And this this ruling has come down in Israeli court. Apparently there's absolutely no chance whatsoever that it'll ever affect these two women who live in who live in New Zealand. I mean they're never gonna have to pay for it. But I just thought it was a really fascinating response. So you've come out, you've made a political statement, you've stood up for something, Lord's cancelled her gig. So we're gonna sue you because we didn't get to see the music. <laughs> I mean, in the case of Poland, I'd say, you know, let's be happy for now that Jagger stepped in. He got a big thanks from Lech Wałęsa, the founder of the Solidarity Trade Union that did so much to end the genuine form of communism, who tweeted that true solidarity will always win. Right. There may be an age limit on being a Polish judge. Thank God there is no age limit on being a member of the Rolling Stones. (laughs) I mean, thank God. (laughs) But it is also interesting that some of what's happening behind the populist wave is a response to popular culture. For instance, one of the things that a lot of these people really dislike is LGBT rights. And that whole part of popular culture, which has become much more ambiguous as to its sexuality. And in fact, a generation who are growing up with a much more ambiguous approach to their to their sexuality and really not a problem with that. Like, it's just not a thing 
anymore. Like, whether or not you're gay or straight or what, like, yeah, whatever. Jagger was a pioneer in this kind of gender fluid, right. you know, stage performance stuff that Bowie right. brought to perfection yeah. and has since become a yeah. hallmark totally. of what it is to be a lead singer for right. any bands. Right, right. And and Prince, and I mean, you look at all these acts, right, who took that very kind of, yeah, very sexy, but very kind of ambiguous in many ways, right? I think the Law and Justice Party should ban this guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's clearly a threat. I think the Law and Justice Party should listen to more Prince. Europe has become a new home for millions of newcomers from the Middle East in just a few short years. The vast majority have settled in Germany, where the far-right Alternative for Germany, or AFD, has successfully played on fears of Muslims to boost its support. Those fears now extend to the lesbian and gay community, which the AFD is courting with promises of protection against intolerant Islam. The push by the far right to use sexual preference as yet another means of vilifying Muslims particularly angers Aileen Kakavand, a psychologist in Berlin. She counsels migrants, many of them Muslims, who have already faced down prejudice and violence at home or during their arduous journeys to Europe because of their sexual orientation and or gender identity. So what does Aileen think the far right is up to? It has a name called homonationalism. Well, that's a way to describe it, though. It's, a, it's an expression built by the academic Jasper Poor. She is from the, from the United States of America. She's an academic in queer theories and etc. And she was working on this topic, established this expression to explain, for example, also the pinkwashing in Israel or, as, as we said just right now, homonationalism. Pinkwashing and homonationalism, they somehow have the same motivation. So pinkwashing is is a method by the let's say mainstream society to use LGBT rights to for example make money or enhance a, a very good and liberal image that's that a society usually doesn't have. So the homonationalism uses LGBT rights to argumenting in their own way. So for example establish an image of the Muslim enemy in our country and LGBTs in our country have to be frightened. But ignoring that, of course, LGBT in our country has especially be have to be frightened of right wing movements as well, and a lot of homophobic incidents in Germany are also prosecuted by German white people. So it's not only migrants doing the homophobic incidents, of course. Now we talked earlier about AfD and some of their political advertisements and things like that that they have done to welcome in the queer community or the LGBT community, is that right? Well, it was not really comp- campaigns. They What they usually do is like using in their speeches, they are trying to use arguments to, like, as I said, to build up the, the Islamic enemies. Like there was one speech when they had the huge protest in Berlin, Beatrix von Storch telling um, that those those Islamic men coming towards our country are, are treating their own wives as slaves and our own homosexuals in Germany have to be frightened from death. Und der Herrschaft dieses Islam gibt es keine andere Wahrheit als den Koran. Christen und Juden sind Menschen zweiter Klasse. Frauen werden wie Sklaven gehalten und Homosexuelle laufen Gefahr, ermordet zu werden. 
And another speech where, for example, Alice Weidel, who is herself a homosexual, a white homosexual, who says that now German LGBTs have to be frightened so much and there are areas where they are not even able to go anywhere and citing several incidences of homophobic homophobic violence and of course showing up only those incidences where migrant people were using violence against LGBT people but ignoring all those incidences from white people. Muslimische Gangs machen in letzter Zeit förmlich Jagd auf Homosexuelle und das mitten in Deutschland und das ist ein Skandal. They use numbers and statistics in the wrong way to to like just to demonstrate their own image of of Islamic people, actually. So this is what, what Jasper Poor tried to explain by homonationalism. They tried to build up an, the image of, of the strangers destroying our country and putting our own citizens in danger. But at the same time, we don't protect those citizens because we don't want to give them rights. And at the same time, we also think that they're too deviant. We think that they are disgusting. We think they have strange ideas because this is also like the argument in other in other speeches they have. The next day, when they're having speeches in Bundestag or whatever day, they're using arguments like gay marriage isn't something we need. It's, it's, it's against our constitution, for example, they say. And then they're having very, very provocative um, questions inside the parliament. Like, for example, so if today we have gay marriage, what is tomorrow? Tomorrow we'll be able to have marriage for four people to marry together. Wenn die Ehe auch aus zwei Menschen gleichen Geschlechts bestehen kann, was Sie jetzt gesagt haben, unabhängig davon, wie Sie abgestimmt haben, ist es denkbar, dass die Ehe auch aus drei Personen bestehen könnte? Und wenn ja, warum? Und wenn dann nein, warum nicht? And would it be would it be possible to 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 marry I don't know family members? So what do you expect to do? So there, in the way they are talking, you can see how much they actually hate LGBT and really think in a very, very bad way. Another of the politicians who was talking about also the gay marriage, saying that now we seriously get to a point where where gay men can marry and they are able to marry and adopt a little child and act, act their pederast dream. So it, we're not talking just about simple homophobic arguments. It's like really in a really, really bad and hateful way they're speaking about this. And who was that particular politician? This was Nikolaus Fest. From the AfD? From the AfD. Vor allem jedoch für eine Gruppe ist die Ehe für alle super. Für Pederasten. Sie können sich so I think this is what's happening. And also what we have to admit from, from our own part now as the LGBT community is that only because you're gay or lesbian or trans doesn't mean that you're liberal. We are using those expressions like homonationalism or other ones There are those motivations that they have, but we also have to admit that we're somehow disappointed because we all had this idea that we are one and one community. And if you grew up a lesbian, then of course you have several political ideas in your mind, like, as I said, anti-racist ideas, but that's just basically wrong. Like a gay or a lesbian person can also be racist still. So it doesn't mean that just because you grew up being different as the others protects you from being very racist and still like for example you can still be a bullying person if you, even if you have been bullied i mean as you say there's a great deal of hypocrisy in this uh usurpation of the lgbt message you're right in the middle of this 
how do you solve the issue? What is your strategy to diminish the way that the LGBTQI's agenda can be taken up by the far right? We all in Germany still have our difficulties with this because there are, of course, voices who say, like, just don't give them too much power. Just don't, because they are using those arguments and they, they are so successful with, get, with getting in the media with it. Like, they just need one comment and they are everywhere and they are listened. So one, there's one side of people telling, like, just don't give them too much power. Just ignore, like, you know, ignore what they say. Just don't listen to it and don't react to everything they say. Because producing bullshit said like this doesn't mean that you have to react to it. But there are other people, of course, saying that you cannot ignore something like this, that you have to act against it. Do you think that there should be, you know, a, a movement to call that out every time it happens? Or do you think it should be ignored? I don't think that the best way to, to react to it is like to always react in an offensive way and to to answer them with arguments. So I think the best way is still indeed to show up like how how their arguments themselves are contradictive. They're using arguments and at the same time they they act against it. So at the one hand, they want to participate at our gay pride in Berlin, but at the other hand, they are trying to make our gay marriage that we finally arrived to, to have it last year, trying to, to make it back again, to come to a point where LGBT people, where homosexuals don't have the right to marry. So let's just take a step back from that. The AfD wanted to participate in Berlin Gay Pride. Exactly. And what happened? Well, the organizers of the of the Gay Pride in Berlin, they have some kind of of image, of course. So people who want to participate at the Gay Pride should fulfill certain images, like open-minded and anti-racistic. And AfD is openly not fulfilling those images. So they had Luckily, they had the right to forbid them to participate, the same as, let's say, NPD or other parties or groups. They would never have the right to participate to that organization. But AfD tried a few years, actually, and this year again, which was even more unbelievable. But of course, they have their homosexuals in their party. And of course, they um, they even built up their own homosexual subgroup in AfD called Alternative Homosexuals. <laughs> in your day-to-day -day work, tell me a little bit about that, and in particular, why for you it's so important to take an LGBT approach to migrants and refugees. For the vast majority of people, is not something they're going to think about a lot. But for you, you're thinking about it every single day. So um, I'm working for Miles. Miles is a project of the German Lesbian and Gay Association settled in Berlin. We have It's a federal system. So there's a German Lesben und Schwulenverband and every region has its own. So I'm working for the Berlin and Brandenburg section. And Miles is a center for queer refugees and people with the migrant background. We're, we exist since pretty long time, since 20 years And of course, like since the last four to five years, we set our focus on queer refugees. What we do is psychological advice, but also legal advice. We support them in their asylum procedure. So we prepare them for the interviews. We get them in contact with lawyers, with LGBT sensitive lawyers to support them in their procedure. And these people, when they come to you, are they traumatized in ways that other refugees and migrants are not? 
as a psychologist, I would say rather you're dramatized or you're not. So I wouldn't say they are more or less dramatized. But the difference be between queer refugees and, let's say, another refugee is that queer refugees, they usually have to flee their home because they have something inside that the society doesn't accept. Of course, you could say that for a political refugee at the same time. But if you grew up with the idea that because of your personal identity, you don't fit in your home country and your families try to kill you or kick you out of the family, then you have a certain idea of yourself. Fleeing because you yourself, you don't fit somewhere, makes something with you. And it's different to flee just because you know that the society is oppressive. A lot of these refugees and migrants actually did flee because of their identity, because of their sexual identity. Close to all of them, because they are not allowed to live in their home country the way they are. So it's not because they have... Of course, they have different political or religious or cultural idea, but the main reason why they had to flee and go take all those risks they took even on their way from the home country to Europe is because they are not allowed to live there just because they have a different sexual or gender identity. Yeah. So what would be, what's a story of somebody you've worked with that, I mean, maybe you can use a name or a pseudonym, put a human face on it. Let's say um, Mohammed from Iran who... who hided himself and his identity his whole life. He was living with his family in one house as an adult, 28 years old. He was he was seeing men after work in, in secret in other places, of course, and having specially um, contact via phone, WhatsApp messages, basically sending images, whatever would you do to, to be in contact and keep it secretly. Then uh, you have your phone with yourself and for a second you you just leave it on the table and there's a child getting the phone, seeing those images, showing it to the father. The father, which is the brother of Muhammad, taking the other brothers, trying to, to catch him with a knife in his hands, trying to catch him until they they find him in a friend's home. Um, aggressing him, hitting him until he can flee and the next days he he's able to to flee and take the border over Turkey. So this would be a lucky situation because he got out of it pretty fast. But there are other situations where people are held and be, being raped or being being put under electroshock therapy because parents have the idea that they, they could heal themselves from their homosexuality. Like the worst things don't always happen in the home country. So always, even in on the way of their flight. So even by, especially those coming overland, they are getting raped when they, when they're seen and detected as queer people. They, they are victim of, well, as I said, sexual violence, but also physical violence. Who would rape somebody for being lesbian or gay? Would it be another gay person or would it be somebody trying to change their sexuality to punish them? Both, actually, both. A lot of a lot of our clients, they have been been raped, and the idea that it could change them again and show them what they really are, like families proving them. You see, I told you, you are heterosexual. This is the way you should live, and now you got back to normal, as they would like to say. And at the same time, they they are like especially transgender women. They are raped by apparently straight men, who just use it, who just use rape as an instrument to humiliate. humiliate. <laughs> queer people. Did what you study prepare you to help these kinds of no. people? No, it didn't. So I, well, I basically studied clinical psychology. What we learn is to, to treat people in a 
in a very good, wealthy situation in Western societies. So let's say a 50-year-old manager who has depression or who is burned out, I would maybe be able to, to, to know from the beginning what to do. I would be trained to do that. And still, I started working in a prison with young sexual and physical offenders. So I already heard a lot of very horrible and brutal stories. But um, working with queer refugees still is something very different to me. So, of course, because me, I'm also a queer person. And I can feel every time I hear those, those stories that it also affects me because they are part of my of my group, so of my, let's say of my people, we have the same background. They also grew up with the idea that, well, they are different from the others. So I somehow can, let's say I can feel more their pain than others' pain. You've had to develop your own psychological treatment. Yes. And you should probably write a book at some point. <laughs> Give me some more years, maybe I'll think about it, yeah. Also, you have an Iranian heritage, or at least in part, how has that complicated or uh, got you to where you are now? So I wouldn't say it's complicated. I'm very happy about it, though. So I grew up with with those uh, with two cultural backgrounds. So my mother being being white German and Christian Catholic, and my father being being brown from Iran. He he himself was a refugee. He came to Germany um, in in the 80s and is Muslim, of course. Um, so I grew up with the both, with somehow both religions and both cultural backgrounds. And for me, it was more, well, it was more empowering because basically I knew both sides. I was able to, to make connections, but also see the differences. Yeah. But of course, like being, growing up as a, as a queer person and having all those, this fight with your own identity, being also in, in this, in this construction of a family, it's not always easy. My mother hadn't any problem at all. My father either, even though he's a Muslim, he was, he was still kind of open to it, but his point is clear that not everybody of my Iranian family should know it. And I also know that I have parts of my Iranian family members still living in Iran who are clearly homophobic. So they're not aware of what I'm doing and what I am actually. Aileen, thank you very, very much. You're welcome. You're I welcome. Really, I really I think enjoyed we could have that. talked three hours. <laughs> at least we could have talked three hours. More, but yeah. yeah. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams and like us on Facebook. You'll also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.